Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. As a lover of food and somebody who also is a huge horror literature and film fan, I was so excited to get a chance to talk to my next guest. My guest today is Dr. Alessandra Pino, who is an expert on the intersections of the Gothic in food and cultural memory. Alessandra was born in Hampstead, London, to an Italian mother and a Venezuelan diplomat father, and she grew up in several different countries. She holds a BA in English Literature and an MA in Translation Studies and a PhD in Food, Cultural Memory, and the Gothic. Alessandra is a co-author of the soon-to-be-out A Gothic Cookbook, which digs into food themes and motifs in a series of classic and contemporary movie novels from the 19th century to the present day. And she is also the co-host of Fear Feasts, a podcast which analyzes the horror genre, films, and books through the lens of food. And I have to say, I'm a really big fan of Fear Feasts. It's a great podcast, and I just am giddy with delight when every episode comes in. I now want to take you to my conversation with the charming Dr. Alice, Alessandra Pino. Here we go. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Alessandra Pino, who is an expert on intersections of the Gothic food and cultural memory. She is a co-host of the Fear Feast podcast, one of my favorite podcasts that I, I listen to with bated breath every two weeks when it comes out, and the co-author of the upcoming book, A Gothic Cookbook. Alessandra, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dean. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm always so happy to talk about food and horror, so thank you. Oh, just a thrill to listen to that magical voice. I thank you for being on the podcast. It's so wonderful. I, I again, I mentioned I listen to the I listen to the podcast every two weeks. I wait for it. I, I pounce on it the minute it comes out. So I'm a huge fan of this person. So I want you all to know that, and you have to listen to the podcast as well. I'm going to have links to it in the in the bio, so you can immediately go to it as well. Don't listen to my podcast. Listen to that podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, we we. Actually, I have a passion for horror and food, both I and Vanessa, and it's so sincere and we sometimes forget to press the record button when we start doing the podcast and we're half an hour in talking about things that have like maybe not even related to the topic that we're going to do for that um, session and we're like oh my gosh we need to start recording but it's just <laughs> the enthusiasm of having someone to talk to um, about just my favorite thing, which is horror, horror films, spooky films. I have a passion for, in particular, kind of the supernatural. So not so gory, more as kind of ghostly, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the connection with food. And Vanessa Backer is my co-host for Fear Feasts podcast. And I did um, a book with my wonderful friend, Ella Bucken, and she's the co-author with me of A Gothic Cookbook, which is due to be out next year. So we're very excited about that. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you live now? Sure. I was born in London, in Hampstead, and my father is Venezuelan. My mother is um, Italian from very near Naples. So I had no choice, really, but to love food from a very early age. Uh, I think that's how it started. I traveled around a lot because my father was a diplomat and I lived in Italy. I lived in Venezuela in Caracas. I got to eat the most wonderful food. And then something incredible happened. I got a job in a Michelin starred restaurant working with a chef. And I was able to see very close up how food worked from the minute it entered the door of the restaurant to the moment it was on people's plates. And that was a real privilege uh, to have to be able to see that. And I think it influenced a lot of what of how I see food, of my idea of food, my idea of food and love, the darkness of food as well. And um, how food operates, you know, in a in a kind of global market and the the things behind that that are both positive and negative. And I did a Ph.D. on food and cultural memory. Um, specifically from the point of view of the gothic so yes my my life has been very much intertwined with with food and darkness and and especially horror so I made everything kind of dovetail <laughs> I, made, I made it dovetail now I like to ask my guests and you've already touched on this what are some of your earliest food memories that kind of um, have stuck with you through the years I think 
the really weird thing that happened to me is I was doing my PhD and my PhD, basically, I specialize in um, sugar and uh, mm -hmm. in Cuba. So the history of, of Cuba and sugar, the plantations. And as I was working on the thesis, I suddenly got kind of flashback to a moment when I must have been around seven years old. And I remember I had an English babysitter. Bear in mind, my, my, my mom is Italian, my dad is Venezuelan. They would speak Spanish and Italian to each other. So I grew up in a non-English speaking household. I learned English when I was five years old, when I went to primary school. And I had a babysitter. And I remember she would always put sugar in her tea. So at the age of seven, I was kind of trying to have tea and putting sugar in my tea. And I remember my dad said to me, we don't do that. <laughs> and I thought, what do you mean? I didn't say anything, but I just thought to myself, well, I'm doing something wrong here. I'm putting sugar in tea. What does he mean? We don't do that. And anyway, as I was learning more about sugar production and the separation that exists between countries that produce food sometimes and then how they reach the Western world, let's put it that way, there's a kind of big void and we don't get to see the modalities of production, the conditions of labor and that kind of detachment, that void really fascinated me. And I think as I was studying about it and I was putting two and two together in order to write my thesis, that was kind of one of the earliest food memories that I, that I got. And it was kind of negative because it was about, you know, not putting something in, in, in a drink. And, um, and I remember it fondly on the other hand, because I think it inspired a lot of what I do now. We've had a um, guest on the show uh, who's written a book about uh, sugar, um, Neil Buttery, uh, The Dark History of Sugar. Um, are you familiar with that book? I am familiar. He is actually a friend of mine. And at the, oh, time, no when he was, yeah, he, at the time when he was writing this book, I said, Neil, I'm writing um, my thesis and it's about um, dark food. So the idea of this as I said, you know, the kind of void that exists between sites of production and then how we buy things from supermarkets and we kind of, it's kind of difficult to envisage how we would eat something knowing where it actually came from and how it was produced, the history and the ties with colonialism. And he said, well, I'm writing this book. And I said, you see, we were meant to be friends. So yeah, he interviewed me for his podcast and I told him all about a Gothic cookbook. So uh, he is a great scholar and, yes, a very good friend as well. Very interesting yeah. topic. I've always been attracted by the dark side of food, like the dark things that we don't know, things that we have to ignore in order to enjoy things, like a cake. Perhaps you wouldn't enjoy a cake as much if you knew all the ingredients and where they came from and how they were produced, the history behind them, and it's um, kind of darker ties to the world. Now, how about... Um horror i've i've loved horror since i can remember and i've always been attracted to horror um how about you have you did you have a love of it when you were young when i was young i unfortunately i think i was a bit too young i entered a room where jaws was being watched and i immediately got someone kind of swooping me up taking me away but it was too late dean because i'd heard the music and that music stayed with me for years and years and years. And I think I watched my first proper horror a little bit later on. And I was, I'm born in 1979. I was born in 1979. And I think the first film I saw, I was a little bit older. Maybe I was, I don't know, 12. And I watched The Woman in Black, the 1983 version. And yes. Oh, yes. And it's been a love story between me and horror. All kinds of horror. But I have a predilection for kind of the supernatural and ghostly. I do as well. Um, now, I know that you, um, I'm sorry, I'll cut this bit out. I, I'll, I'll mark this as a point to uh, edit. You have a BA in English literature and an MA in translation studies and a PhD in food cultural memory and the Gothic. Can you talk about your um, choice of uh, educational um, degrees and how you came to apply for these fields of studies? Yeah, I was fascinated by the fact that it's quite hard to learn a language. And I was lucky because my mom 
taught me Italian and she spoke Italian at home and my dad would speak to me in Spanish. So I had those two languages in my head, but I've also, I've always very strongly admired people who can learn a completely new language. I think that's amazing. And I thought, actually, I'm, I'm not really able to do that. I didn't want to, I wanted to explore the ones that I already knew and the background and the culture. So I did, I did that. I, I did just that at university and I, was fascinated by interpretation and translation thinking well if I know the languages then I can definitely translate and be an interpreter no problem actually those are completely different skills at which um, I failed quite miserably um, you know the literary translation the poetry that kind of thing perfect I loved doing that and I was good at that but I wasn't getting many jobs in that field so I kind of had to turn to the more corporate and that was something that I wasn't attracted to so I carried on and that's when I thought let me just really do what I what I truly truly love and that is try to combine horror with food and the idea of cultural memory I had the most wonderful supervisor um, Dr Lucy Bond at the University of Westminster who managed to kind of give me just the general view of how things fit together in the world when you're analyzing a text so it's not just about history it's about why this kind of history now why are we making films about the second world war what does it mean how are we reinterpreting them and what is the horror in that so what are the elements that we want to pick from that to focus on because they're relevant today what is it about the cold war that persists in our minds and so there are so many reinterpretations of that and I just think anything that you pick out has to do with cultural memory and the way that we re-envisage our history and our past in order to move ahead in a different way in a way that we want to so I don't know if that makes sense but that was what fascinated me about cultural memory and of course the gothic side of things and why there is this dark side also fits together with history and that kind of reasoning for me. So that was my course of, of studies. I also recently did an online course on um, parapsychology because my idea, Dean, is to eventually just, you know, leave everything behind and become a ghostbuster. That's my actual dream. And I hope Vanessa joins me on this. You <laughs> on know, this I have a journey, good contact. But I, I have a good contact with you. Uh for you we have a uh, we've had a guest on the show um i could send you his information he's a local author and he's um both a parapsychology expert who's been on television and such and he's also an expert on chocolate no this yeah. could be my just the perfect person for me then please do share yeah i'll send you that information uh later on i think you'll like them um you talked about in your bio, dark academia. Can we talk about that a bit? Because that sounds wonderful. I, I have the, all these ideas in my head of what that means. So what does it mean in, in reality? I don't know if it's relevant to, I think I play a little bit with that term because, you know, dark ac academia is more something I think to do with, you know, as soon as you say that, you think big grand halls, the darkness of kind of books and dusty um, bookshelves and Harry Potter, etc. So I'm kind of taking that with a twist and just saying what I do is I analyze the darkness of food. So for me, that's dark academia. So I have my idea of what a dark kitchen is, of what um, dark food is. And so that's how that's that's how I use it. But it may not be everyone's interpretation. So um, you've worked in restaurants um, before and you have some history there. Can you talk about your, your time in restaurants and what you did? Yes, so I worked in a Michelin-starred restaurant for an Italian chef and it was like a second family. I learned nearly everything I know about food probably there and the love for food. Um, I saw chefs working. I was um, his um, PA and then head of communications, and I did research. Um, and so it was just a wonderful experience where I could see close up how people handled food and in just such an excellent way that, um, yes, I think that really stayed with me in terms of how I developed with my own research following that and my passion for food, because it just brings such joy to people. And the restaurant had customers that were so loyal and they would have done anything to to eat there and and so that just made me start 
viewing food slightly differently, the preparation of food, the sourcing food and and everything that's you know ethically correct that goes on behind behind the scenes. It's very much like a theater. So um, I would love I loved watching the chef's work and like the build up and then how things would come out and you would enter into a state of absolute calm in the in the restaurant itself, whereas in the kitchen. It wasn't that it wasn't calm, but it was obviously a, a completely different in hot environment. So I yeah. just love that transition and I loved working in between. So I'd organize events. Um, yeah, I was involved with the research and just anything to do with um, with the food and the people who were wonderful. You're the co-author of a Gothic cookbook, uh, which digs into food themes and modus in a series of classic contemporary novels from the 19th century to the present day. Can you talk to me a little bit about the book and, and how you conceptualized it and um, how it came to kind of be a reality with your co-writer? Yes, it was a very odd story because it was my birthday and I received a package and it was a huge book, a wonderful book by Edgar Allan Poe, or cloth bound, black. And my friend Ella had sent it to me and I said, Ella, this is such a wonderful present. And she said, Ali, I was looking all over the place because... I know that you're doing gothic studies and food and I wanted to find something about that you know together but there just is nothing there's no gothic cookbook there's not and I said Ella why don't we write one because she's a wonderful food writer and journalist and I said well why don't we do that and she said great so we did it <laughs> it took us a while to kind of think through everything and make it become a reality because initially I pitched the idea and to a few kind of agencies, agents, publishers, and they were like, this is so niche. This is like not really up my alley. This is not. And so we got no, no, no. And then we thought, okay, well, and Ella had the brilliant idea of going to Unbound, which is a crowd crowdfunding platform. And the next day we received a response and they were so enthusiastic and we were just transported by the enthusiasm. And that's how it all st kind of started. And the idea behind it is that there, there are 13 chapters and each chapter is dedicated to a Gothic novel or story. And we take the ingredients in each in each story and just create recipes inspired by it. And there's a short essay in each chapter just explaining kind of what what lies behind the food, what the food is doing in this in this book. And it's just very original and new. There's never before been a Gothic cookbook. This is the first one in the world. Uh, we're very, yeah. we're very proud of that. And um, and yeah, it's it's just a brilliant opportunity. Uh, she's a Ella is a recipe developer. Um, I kind of come up more with the theory behind it because I'm, let's say, an academic. And, and so that's how we make the perfect team. Illustrations are by Lee Henry and they're wonderful. Uh, and mm. I think Yes, they are absolutely fantastic. So, yes, that's how that's how that all started. Do you um, can you give us a little taste of some of the uh, stories and recipes in the book? Yes, one of the first things I thought about uh, when thinking about horror and food, you know, as I said before, you, it's not about thinking about food that, which is disgusting or gross, and it's you know what you kind of get Halloween style, you know, eyes popping out and sweets in the shape of guts and things like this. So we're talking yeah. about good recipes, traditional recipes, because the ingredients in these novels and in these stories and the dishes that are sometimes described are normal dishes. You know, if you take Dracula, for example, when Jonathan Harker is getting closer and closer to the castle, he has the paprikash dish and he even makes a note of the says note, you know, make a make note of the recipe for Mina. And that's a very moving moment, actually. That's in the first page of the book. So food is actually quite pivotal to the plot as he's getting closer to the castle he feels stranger and stranger and he thinks this is the paprikash this is the spice this is the spicy food that I'm not used to being for you know from the west and I'm getting closer and closer to this unknown um, territory this wild territory and that's what it is so he can hear um, wolves howling dogs barking and he attributes it to the to the Hungarian stew and so I thought isn't that fascinating we can take these ingredients, make our own version of them and explain what food is doing in, in the books. Likewise with Frankenstein, you know, the idea of this monster who is vegetarian and who excludes himself from being like other men, like other people. He's not worthy of eating meat. And so he says, I will eat berries and acorns. 
and this role of kind of, of of vegetarianism, which then ties in with Mary Shelley and the idea of 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 kind of, of of vegetarianism, which is very important at that moment in time, where you get a lot of change in how food is being produced and the technology behind food. That again is a whole other discourse, and I thought there is so much going on with the Gothic and food, and then on a wider level, you know, with horror or horrifying elements in food. And so you get the two very, very close together. I think what really works when it comes to food is that we have a kind of empathy because we can feel at one with the character. You know, if Jonathan Harker is feeling sick, if he's feeling anxious and he thinks it's to do with the spices, well, maybe you might start feeling a little bit hot as well. Your tongue might start kind of wanting to, to, to kind of lick your lips and feel like you need a bit more water, a bit more hydration. You might feel sad, just like Frankenstein's monster, because he can't enjoy the food that that people enjoy. He has to just kind of pick berries off a tree. And he's such a big, a big monster as well. You feel like he needs more nourishment. And 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 actually, this is really interesting to think, oh, he needs more nourishment. And we associate say associate that with meat eating, because that isn't necessarily the case. That's something that we've arrived to in our um in our in this moment in time where we think this is what we need. We need protein. Where is protein? What are other sources of protein? The monster was already kind of exchanging that and saying, this is what I'll do. I'll punish myself by not eating meat. Um, and then of course you get other uh, novels where there's a bit more subtlety and you get things like Jane Eyre and all the kind of symbology behind the lack of eating the idea of hunger so it's food but it's also the lack of food and what that does and how that moves the plot along and makes people make certain decisions as well I wanted to um, talk next about the podcast because I just I know you from the podcast and I'm such a enormous fan of it um how did you conceptual i mean how did this come together for you because you do this and you didn't just do it on your own you, this is done with another you know your co-anchor and yeah. you, your, your first um season that i've listened to has had such wonderful wonderful choices and i was you know whenever i hear about horror i tend to hear about you know chucky and uh freddy krueger blah 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 saw movies and, all, and that's all fine and good but like You've been talking about some movies from, you know, when I was young, um, you know, before your time period even, and like Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, um, then contemporary films like House of the Devil and, uh, you know, Angel Heart from the 80s. And you you juxtapose them often with the novels, which I love because I've, in, in all cases, I've read both the book and seen the movie. And I love how you, you tackle that because you guys really do read the books and go into them and, and juxtapose them. And I didn't even know like uh, the devil's advocate had a book yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was surprised. I was like, I'm like, now I got to go get it. So how did, <laughs> how did this all come together for you guys? Our aim is to make people watch more and more horror and read horror. <laughs> a little work. Um, I just started a Gothic cookbook. We were kind of promoting it and Vanessa Backer, who is also known as Food in Books, has her own blog, um, asked me to come on her podcast and talk about um, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, the mm -hmm. book. And, and so that's where we talked the first time. Then we talked about Dracula on another episode and we kind of became friends very quickly. All we would do is talk about horror and then that kind of turned into more um, deeper discussions about humanity and why people do certain things and and Vanessa is an avid avid reader whereas I'm more on the film side and just like you I was surprised sometimes she'd say Ali have you read this book this is what this film is based on and I'm like I didn't know that even existed and so that's how we got together and we started Fear Feasts and we never looked back I mean, we can't wait to record. We do every two weeks simply because we need the time. And to be honest, if I'm not, I'm, she already has read the books. She knows, you know, she's like giving me time to read the books most of the time because she's she's there before I have. She, she suggested Jack Sparks. You know, she's kind of really, really on it when it comes to the book side. And I love that because I can then really compare the details. And that's where my 
interest lies is kind of seeing and sometimes the author of the script is the same as the author of the book which is fascinating and I'm like well why oh. on earth why yeah why on earth would um you know David Seltzer who wrote the script for the omen and wrote the book why is he changing people's names that's so annoying um and so we have a laugh about that but some some other details change and sometimes the films come out much later than the book so it's interesting to see how the cultural context changes and what they decide to change so in the omen for example which came out in the 70s you have a set of kind of cultural reference and then you get into the 2006 version um, kind of the, the comets arriving and all of that but it's not so much about the European Union it's about 9-11 it's about the tsunami so you get different political references isn't that fascinating how you can change a book you can change the you know the meaning is the same you know the devil is the devil but then how the devil manifests itself is different and I just think that is the most in interesting and fascinating thing um, because you get an idea of what's important to us now. What are we looking at now? What are the tragedies for us now? And how are things panning out for us now? And this kind of persistent interest with, for example, the war, maintaining the memory alive of the Holocaust, of the Cold War, you know, look what's happening now. And so you get, I don't know, it's like watching things happen in real time <laughs> through through fiction. And it's always great to kind of read the books and and they are really well, well written as well. So the script and I, I like the book, The Omen, for example, same thing with The Exorcist. You know, I don't know what to choose. The book is just as good as a film. So William Friedkin um, directed the film, but it's based on a book by William Peter Blatty. And there are some such great differences and you see them in food. Well, I'm always looking at the food, obviously. And, you know, that's where our, Vanessa and I always are looking at, at that. And so I just think, why is there so, why is there curry in the book? And there's no emphasis on that in the, in the films. Like, what were they trying to say about, about the mum? You know, the fact that she was do, what does that mean she was out kind of meditating is she like a 70s style um woman that doesn't have a grounding in you know what is being a proper mother is this a kind of punishment you go a different direction also thanks to that food changing um and and the food choices yeah are very very interesting book compared to film I really loved, um, I mean, I loved all the episodes, but I thought you, some of them, I just wanted to get up and applaud afterwards, although I was driving, which would be horrible if I did that. So, um, but that I, uh, horrific. yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I loved um, your Rosemary's Baby one, because that's a favorite of mine. I've seen it like seven times and I, I love it every time. I never get tired of it. It's just one of those films you can watch again and again. And I loved your breakdown of it and plus the book as well. And I just thought you did such a great job. And then when you did House of the Devil, I thought nobody had seen that. Because I, 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 I love, love, I love that, that film. film. I yeah, made it's Vanessa a great watch film. it. <laughs> it's so good. She's like, Ali, it, I'm not scared by it. I'm like, well, that's, but still. <laughs> it's still it's good. good. Yeah, it's a really good yeah. film. And it's um, such even, a good job. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm a massive fan of Ira Levin. I don't know if you've read A Kiss Before Dying. If you haven't, and not many people. No. Okay, that might be one of my favorite books. Uh, I love Rosemary's Baby, obviously, but A Kiss Before Dying, I don't know, I just couldn't put it down. Brilliant. I love that style of writing. I thought there's a lot of, it's kind of the same, the book and the, and the film, but Mia Farrow, who also we see in The Omen again, the 2006 version, and Mia Farrow is just, I love the way she's just great in, in horror. She's just got the perfect everything to be in horror. Um, and she's Mrs. Baylock in the 2006 Omen. Now she's yeah. Rosemary in, in Rosemary's Baby. And I don't know with another actress if it would have been the same. So sometimes the actors are really important too. But everything that happens with the food is so significant. It's, it's so important. And for example, in a Gothic cookbook, we do um, read some really great re recipes inspired by, by Rosemary's Baby. Because yes, you get the gross milkshakes and we don't know what's in them and they're green, but then you also get the chupichileno, you get the chalk, um, we call them the chalk mousse, mousses because they're white chocolate yeah. and they've got the chalky undertaste. So we play a little bit with that, but they're delicious really. And so, um, yes, I just love that there is there some issue of trust and food because Rosemary not only can't trust her own husband, 
and she says that right at the start she's like she he's an actor do we know who we can trust you know does who knows if when they're acting or when they're being real and and then that kind of filters down into all the food and he's giving her this mousse and there's and that's what that's what makes her have that that nightmare um nightmare kind of slash reality but the food plays a, a big big role in also the neighbors coming by you know is this being is this hospitality is this a nice neighbor or is it me being um too trusting and too open with someone that I don't really know and so yes I don't open my door to any neighbors Dean I don't know what you think about that or if you do the same but it's just not worth it no I tend to be uh I, I my neighbors don't find me very friendly so it's not really a problem I have <laughs> they haven't read Rosemary's Baby that's why I well I have a um a skeleton um looking through the blinds in my house so people tend to not bother me <laughs> I have a skull above my uh, shelf above a door. So that's, yeah, that makes sense. I know that this last uh, season was, um, you're going into your second season, correct? Correct. We have a really great guest coming up soon for our net. You you might know him. I can't say anything. Or Vanessa, actually, when this comes out, that will already be out, won't it? So we might be able to say that the guest um, was uh um Jameson Ridenauer which ha who has the Palimpsest podcast uh, oh, again yeah. about haunted houses so he he came on and to talk to us about the haunting of Hill House so you know this before anyone else Dean and it was the most uh, it was the greatest discussion like he he is a scholar himself he does podcasting and so he's also a fan of ghosts and the supernatural so it was really good Ooh, are you already thinking about other seasons or am I being too greedy by asking Oh, we are, we've planned them all out. You know, uh, Vanessa is, she's very structured like that. And, you know, I just think there's so much to to, to, to kind of, to, to, to squeeze in one. And we just said, look, let's just do it season by season. We put in what we think, you know, at the time is maybe five, six, seven episodes. And then we can go back to that same season. Cause I was like, there's so many more books about and, and films about the devil. How do we do this? Right. And she's like, no, yeah. We can just have a little taster. So each season is kind of a taster of, and then we can do more and more. But yeah, we're going to have dysfunctional families. We're going to have, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say all these things, uh, Dean, because Vanessa will tell me off. Uh oh, no, like, I don't no, want to get don't you in reveal, trouble. Don't reveal all, my see all, the, all our secrets, all fearful secrets. But I hope, um, I have a hope that, or I, I hope I dare hope that in the future you tackle at some point The Wicker Man, which is my favorite film. And, uh, I, I, when I make jam for my friends, I, I always uh, use summer aisle uh, labels uh, for their for the jam and everything. And I think I even have a, a, a tea line that you can buy online that are all summer aisle themed. That's brilliant. And did you enjoy a film like Midsummer then, for example? What do you yes. think? Okay, great. I liked it quite a bit. I, 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 it was one of the things like I. It's funny because I think I could say to you and, and any fans of horror that I'm like I enjoyed it. But it, my wife was horrified by my liking of it. Like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, it's a good film. I'm sorry. It's good. <laughs> a bit like Hereditary. It kind of leaves you with, I went with a friend of mine called Nikki, bless her. And she's, I think she said to me, I don't think I'll be able to eat or sleep um, for about, a, for a couple of days after watching this film. Because also when you watch it at the cinema, it's quite dark. So you get, it kind of stays with you a little bit longer, but they're such great films. Yes, yeah, so I said Midsummer just because it reminds me slightly, obviously, of The Wicker Man for obvious reasons. Oh, yeah, things. very much. Yeah, you can't miss that. And then also, oh, I yeah. mean, there's The Dark Secret of Harvest Home based on the Thomas Tryon book, Harvest Home, which is yes. a lot of food comes up in that, too, just want to mention. But, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that not having a horror film affect you so much because I don't really get affected by horror films that badly. But when I watched the film Dunkirk, you know, you're talking about history and how we think of it and how, you know, in films, how it is portrayed. You know, Dunkirk, I, I think I got PTSD from Dunkirk. Yes. And now, Dean, actually, on that note, because you actually mentioned what were one of your first food memories? And I told you my first food memory that I can remember. And I was yeah. already quite, quite old, really, because I was six or seven. But then I speaking to my grandmother, who's no longer um with me unfortunately she used to tell me a lot about the war the second world war 
And yeah. she never used to eat sardines. And I always said, and I didn't think anything of it. And then one day she said, well, you want to know about food and the war? I was already starting my research. And she said to me, well, I don't eat sardines because when the soldier, soldiers used to wash up on the shore in Salerno, which is kind of on the coast where we're from, near about 30 minutes from Naples, they used to see the corpses of the shoulders be, uh, soldiers sorry, being eaten by the sardines. And so after she saw that, she could never eat a sardine after that. So that, that for example, um, is a food memory, quite a dark food memory connected to, to history and to things. And you don't really see that. That's just something quite personal that she told me and that that could be a good element to kind of, if anyone was ever doing a film, I'd probably kind of do, put it, insert something like that, that to make it kind of more, more real. You know, you get um, writers like Elio Vittorini and they talk about Sicily and the fact that all they had was oranges and oranges. And that's what fascinates me. You have an idea of Italy so abundant with so much prosperity in, when it comes to food and this idea, but that was created outside of Italy mainly um, yeah. by writers and food writers who would have a summer home there. But, you know, in periods, especially uh, obviously during the war and post-war, people were eating always the same thing. There was an extreme scarcity. You didn't get that much variety. It wasn't how we see in the films. It wasn't all of that, you know. So, um, so that is, yeah, that's what stays with me in the end and why I do my research. Yeah, I mean, when we think of Italy, we think of La Dolce Vita or something like that. We don't think of anything like that. We, we tend to just think of like, you know, it always has to be kind of overkill. But then, of course, you know, I've heard lots of guests on that talk about the scarcity issue, especially after the war. And, yes. You know, that that really sticks with you. Yeah. You used to get uh, ersatz, I don't know how to say, ersatz dishes. So you would replace, for example, if you were having uh, soup and maybe you were making it with rabbit, rabbit soup, you didn't have the rabbit. So you would only put the herbs that you would put with the rabbits, but without the rabbit. And that would be your rabbit kind of fake rabbit soup. And that was just a normal thing. Um, it was a very vegetarian, it was very vegetarian, not all this meat. Then the whole meat scenario scene comes uh, in with a bit more force when after people migrate to America and there is more availability. So then you get meat kind of everywhere. Do you have any food writers that have inspired you over the years or any kind of food? I, I don't want to just you know have it be sequestered to food writers. I'll use the term broadly, uh, food celebrities. Are there anybody that you really enjoy that you like to watch their TV shows or listen to or read their books that you really like the work? Oh, let me think. Yeah, I watch and I read so much and I like bits of everything. Um, there was a reader I was, uh, I was actually reading quite recently a book. Let me just see if I can get it. It's MFK Fisher. Um, oh yeah, a local woman. Yeah. So how to cook a wolf and things like that. I love I love anything that has a bit of history attached to it so that you get the recipe, but there's an explanation and the explanation is personal. Um so yeah, I I really enjoy enjoy books like that. There's a really good book I wrote I read recently and um I like it because it's there is kind of a reference to Brexit and yeah. you kind of get this idea of what happens uh, in the UK after Brexit but very gently through how um, friendships evolve and relationships and also food and it's the Yellow Kitchen by Margot Vialeron uh, it's um, it really stayed with me because it was a very gentle book but also it gave you the idea of kind of the force of Brexit happening and um, yeah, I like that combination. I like where food plays a role. And it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be very elaborate descriptions or anything, but it gives you a sense of like that, that wanting to be together and being with friends and then the difficulty of something like Brexit happening and then what happens after that. So that kind of writing I really enjoy as well. I want to, I mean, this is probably an unfair question to ask you, but I mean, what are some of your favorite horror films? If you don't mind talking about that a bit. No, I love um, anything like um, the possession, anything where 
someone is being possessed and their behavior changes and it starts changing slowly. And you see the dynamics in the family changing as well. And I first kind of got into this type of film and book as well, but Kim Newman um, wrote a book about a family who was being infested and how the dynamics started changing. And, and then I started getting into that kind of idea of the poltergeist and like, I like the film poltergeist as well. Um, and uh, that's food bits in that as well. Yeah, there is. And things take place a lot in the kitchen, but if I have to tell you, like one of the films that I've watched the most and, um, it probably won't be, uh, a choice that people will go, Oh yeah, <laughs> quite the opposite. Cause it's not, it's not really a well-loved film, but I just love paranormal activity. For example, I just think that's yeah. a great film and lots yeah. of the scenes take place in the kitchen. You got, you have so much to work with when it comes with cutlery, when it comes with the uh, fridge scenes and, you know, jump scares behind the fridge and um, cupboards opening plates flying out. There's a lot going on in, in kitchens and even a gentle film, like I say gentle, but like um, Maggie, where we're talking about zombification, nice kitchen scenes there as well. And we covered the dark and the wicked as well in Fear Feasts, because that's one of my favorites as well. So where you see that chopping and yeah, anything like that, where there's a family and then a gradual inf kind of infestation of some sort, or something is taking over and people are realizing that something's not quite right i just love that build up i think it's great it's funny because kitchens um in movies you almost they almost become tropes in and of themselves because for instance i mean god i don't know how many times i've seen this you know the protagonist opens the kit the, the refrigerator door so the refrigerator door is on say on the right hand side blocking our view now we know the minute that door is closed, there's going to be a monster or a zombie or a ghoul or whatever there, right? That's always yeah. going to happen. Or they don't. And then you're like, oh, you had that kind of almost jump scare, but they, they teased you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or garbage disposal. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's more kind of, there are more elements in the kitchen, aren't there? And it's where you feel more relaxed and it's where um, you're like, well, I can hide behind a table or I won't see something behind a fridge. So you, I'm working on a theory called fridge theory at the moment, which is precisely about that. Because we open the fridge, something might be in the fridge, like in Ghostbusters, or you might get an idea of someone by what they have in the fridge. You know, even in Angel Heart, when people are keeping drugs in the fridge or whatever, you know, you get to know who that person, in, in fact, my theory is more like a fridge is like a second body for us. You know, we... We're, gonna, we're eventually going to consume the items that are in the fridge. They're going to be in us. We are fridgeified in that way. <laughs> it goes through us. So it's like having a, an alter ego. People hide things in the fridge and in the freezer because normally people won't go and look for them there. Um, you might get, yeah, just that flat. Even Bridget Jones, when she opens the fridge and you're like, oh, you know, what is this character about? Like, what is, tell, tell me more, open the fridge and you get to find out what that character is is about. Are they OCD in the sense, you know, they have to keep everything in color-coded order? Are they just have one beer and that's it? You know, so they have uh, expired milk. What does that say about them? So yeah, there's a lot that can be done when it comes to, to kitchens and fridges in particular. And in, there's a web, there's a, a group called Romancing the Gothic and I do talks on that platform a lot. And I talk about the cruelty of consumption in one of them. And I think I go through fridges there because even in it, there's a fridge in the Joker, there's a fridge. They may not be, you know, the Joker isn't necessarily a horror film, but you get ho horrifying elements in that. And the fridge might play a role, you know, when he, he kind of climbs in the fridge at the end. <laughs> and, and cannibalism, I mean, gets such play in horror films. And that be, that can be even done so subtly, and it's something that really horrifies and disturbs people. People still are very much like the thought of it can be so disturbing that people won't even watch a film because it just they can't handle the thought of it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that something like that, for example, the metaphor um, of cannibalism is a great metaphor for trauma because if you are or kind of growing in a traumatic environment and that trauma perpetuates, which is what, what horror is all about, the perpetuation of something, right? And then, and something that is kind of unsettling and uh, disruptive, 
within that. So it's, something has to change. And with cannibalism, there's a great film, for example, We Are What We Are, I think it's called. And and at the end, you know, the, the cannibalism remains, but you understand it. They they are, if you grow a cannibal, that's your, that's your framework. So you're going to kind of continue with that, but there's an understanding there. I don't know if I, so I like this idea that you can understand where the horror comes from. It is not, doesn't make it right, but you can understand right. like trauma, the perpetuation of some sort of abuse. It's, it's a very, it's very delicate topics. And I think horror tackles that so well sometimes and and you get that a lot through food as well where you can really empathize you know you get the single mum often um we saw that even in Megan now with the with the aunt who's kind of has this niece to look after who doesn't have parents anymore and they're at the table and of course there's a slice of pizza she's not going to make a meal from scratch you know we have right. the symbol of what it is to be a parent that can't deal with something or a carer or a guardian it's like this is too much for me you get pizza all the time, you know, in many, many Always films. pizza. Always pizza. And it's like sometimes you get a microwave like in um, the film Ouija and you know something bad's going to happen if you microwave a meal. Because it means mm -hmm. you don't, in, in the idea of like in the filmic food world, it's like you're not taking care of yourself. So something's going to get you. Some demon's going to get you now. Absolutely. So um, I wanted to ask you, a few questions that are kind of off the cuff. So the first one is, if you had to choose a last meal, and it doesn't matter the context, I think I know that other podcasts will often give some kind of scenario or something like that. Let's say you got a bad review on your new book and you, you killed the critic. How about that? <laughs> so what would you pick for your last meal? I love Chinese food and I'd go with my family. We always enjoy eating Chinese food uh, at a, a restaurant in London, in North London. So that's where I go. 100%. Um, if I, when I was living in, in England in the 80s, I used to really enjoy um, going to some of the older cemeteries, not new cemeteries, of course, but older cemeteries that had graves from, say, you know, over 200 years ago and have little picnics and stuff. They're always very pleasant places. Is there any um, graveyards in the England that you would like to, that you would have a picnic in if you could pick one? Oh, well, there is um, the cemetery right by kind of in, in East London. And Danny Boyle holds festivals there sometimes. He's a local. And um, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a picnic there. Why not? Kind of keep keep off, you know, don't, I wouldn't go too far in. Then it gets a bit wild, but yeah. If you could have a dinner party and have up to 12 or 13 um, characters from horror films at the dinner party, who would you invite? <laughs> um, that really wonderful looking lady from Insidious. Yeah. The woman in black. <laughs> um, most of the kind of um, Dracula's uh, around in, in, in any of the films. I like all of them. Uh, in And this is debatable because it's a romance, really. But Jane Eyre, I put in the gothic section. It's kind of horrifying how Mr. Rochester behaves. But even though people think he's great. Yeah. So I put him in and uh, poison him. And then I'd put... Um, <laughs> Maxim as well from Rebecca, who every, everyone thinks is great, but is just as um, horrifying as Mr. Rochester, I think. And then you've got to have Frankenstein's creature because that would be yeah. great. Fun. I'd sit him next to me and, you know, we'd be vegetarian together. And then all the characters from The Haunting of Hill House. I mean, except maybe for Theodora, who's really annoying, but I love Mrs. Dudley and Mr. Dudley. And um, yeah, and then Mrs. Baylock from The Omen. I think, have I reached the number now? Yeah, is it like the, the Last Supper, 13 people? Yeah. Well, who, what would you serve? Pizza? Uh, <laughs> I think I'd serve for this dysfunctional family. Yeah, definitely pizza, which I love anyway. Okay. So um, what's next for you? Um, I am writing something else. And I'm always writing. And then we'll see what's, what that becomes. Some projects I just, I write and it doesn't, turn into anything they're just the beginning of something and I will pick them up after a few years but I have from the academic point of view um, I have a chapter coming out in the Palgrave edition of um, the cultural memory anthology so that should be out soon and it's about Cuba and sugar and it's about an author called Christina Garcia she's a Cuban-American writer and in and I analyzed the 
the metaphors and symbols that are tied to sugar that she she uses in her novels. She wrote a novel called Dreaming in Cuban in 1992, and it's been very um, influential when it comes to anything that, that I write and also to how, how I see the world. So that should be out soon. I'm starting a podcast with Neil Buttery and uh, Dr. Neil Ooh. Buttery and Sam Bilton. It's going to be called um, A is for Apple podcast, and that should be out sometime maybe before the end of the year or beginning of next year, but we're working hard on that. It's going to be an encyclopedia of food and drink, and we go through the alphabet letter by letter. And that's going to be that good fun. That sounds great. Oh, my God. Yeah. You two together. Because I love I love Neil both. I mean, I love him. I love his work as well. And I love his podcast. So I can't wait to, to hear both of you on a podcast. That's going to be that's wonderful. That's going to be good. And we've got Sam Bilton with us as well, who's a wonderful food historian. And, um, yeah, it's going to be really, really good. So I really very much look forward to that. I, I One last cheeky question, just because I'm very curious and nosy. Um. What, are you reading any good uh, horror books right now? Well, now um, I'm reading The Shining, but um, because we're going to be doing that in our haunted house. So you know that before anyone else. Yeah. Um, uh, the Shining. And then uh, I was reading Black Phone. The Black Phone. So I don't know if you watched the film. No, um, not seen based, it. Okay. So it's based on a short story. So I was reading that. Um, oh wait, you know, I, I have read. Listen, I have actually. I have, I did read that one. Sorry, yeah, I did. Sorry. Yeah, so I'm reading that. Sometimes I really like short stories, so I'll read that. Um, I love. I've been. I did a talk on Horacio Quiroga and the Feather Pillow recently, and that's again on romancing the Gothic. So I love anything that's Latin American horror as well. And there's a lot coming out now, which is great. So Mariana Enriquez and um, other other authors it's great and I can read them in Spanish because I can understand Spanish and speak Spanish luckily and it always makes a difference to like be able to read some things and then I can compare it to the English translation I love doing that I don't know why I love the comparison of things so much it just gives me an insight into into like the diff the cultural differences so that's I think why my obsession um with with that that's where it stems from and that's what that's what I think makes Fear Feast so good as well the idea that there is a difference between different forms of how you would produce and interpret a film or a book. And then you can, yeah, you can find out more about what's happening in the world. Excellent. Alessandra, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a real treat for me to get a chance to talk to you. So thank you for being on here. We're going to put um, links to your podcast. And that was my conversation with Alessandra Pino. We're going to have links to her book, The Gothic Cookbook, where you can pre-purchase it in the bio, as well as a link to her wonderful bi-weekly podcast, Fear Feasts, which I enjoy very much. Next week, we'll be speaking with Kevin Geddes concerning his just recently out, Keep Calm and Fanny On, The Many Careers of Fanny Craddock. I had a wonderful conversation with Kevin, and I love talking about the topic of food presenter Fanny Craddock. That'll be out next week. Until next week, I hope you're all having a wonderful summer. And I guess I'll see you at the library.